Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When did you find that? You never uh, told me before. I don't know, told you, no. Oh. It must be when you had a drink in your hand, what, listening to me then? No, no, Sandra, you've never told me. No, not all right. But um, you are getting forgetful. Yeah, but I told you about bleeding five years ago. I wasn't forgetful then, and you weren't forgetful then. Was, was it? Was we five years ago? No, Forgot. we weren't. Oh. We Hello and welcome. This is episode 12 of the Paul Ryder Tapes. I'm Angela Smith, Paul's ex-wife, and in the months leading up to his death, we sat down and he told his incredible, complete life story, the bare-naked truth with an unparalleled level of honesty. 12 days after we finished recording, he passed away suddenly. Coming up in this episode. There were always arguments back at that point. In 99, there were just always horrible, horrible arguments, horrible things being said while we were on stage. Um, it wasn't a nice place to be in our band, I didn't think, 99, really. Walking out of the room, and this kid was walking towards me and went, <gasps> you're the reason I've got a heroin habit. Paul's band ended up being Sean's band, and it got Bev as well. So the focus was very much on, on Sean and Bev. Both took the tops off, fisticuffs, I was refing, and then um, then they put them back on and went back to rehearse again. I would have killed him because of the way he was treating me, especially on stage down the microphone. And I wanted to kill him because of the shit he was saying. We left the last episode where the Mondays had reformed in 1999 for a comeback tour. I remember... The rehearsals were very tense. I remember there was often flare-ups between you and Sean in the rehearsal room. Yeah. We were filming at the time. Oh. And I remember Rowetta chasing me out of the room with a camera because you and Sean were fighting and she didn't want me to get that on camera. Right. Do you remember that? You were really protective of them. You were like, you've got to get out now. You can't, you can't film this. I'm, I'm, still like, I'm still like that now. I still would be now. I can't bear it. It's even worse now. Imagine with everyone on camera phones. I just I hate it. Yeah, so when I first met you, 
you were drinking a lot and I didn't know anything about addiction and I didn't know that mm-hmm. heroin addicts who'd stopped taking heroin should also steer clear of alcohol. No, neither did I. Well, yeah, I did, actually. I knew that, but yeah. wasn't following the uh, wasn't following the programme. And then my friend Nigel, who was a, still is, got, uh, thank the Lord, a recovering addict, he must have... Love Nigel. Yeah, he must have 30 years sober oh, at God, this yeah, point. Oh, God, yeah, must be. But he was, like, my mentor for you. He used to take me to meetings for oh, family members of addicts. I didn't know So that. I learned... Yeah, you did at the time. I learned mm. very quickly that um, this wasn't a good thing, that you were drinking so much, and it wasn't, like, party time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went to Dublin. You were doing a gig in Dublin, and I was with you. Right. And you told me that your friends, Andy and Dave... Disco Dave and yeah. Andy Hardy wanted to talk to me. Oh. Paul's friend Dave Bratell and his wife Maureen remember that day really well. It was a time when when me and Paul had a... a what's it called when you can com- confront people? Intervention. Intervention? Yeah. Um, me and Andrew were getting increasingly concerned about Paul. And Paul's friend Andy recalls his troubling mental state. It was fragile then. It was still fragile, but it was emerging out of that kind of few years, those few difficult years then. He's beginning to, again, but it can all unravel very, very quickly unless you haven't got support there. It was quite clear that, you know, he was, he was, he was losing it. You know, he, he, was, uh, he, he was in the middle of, you know, somewhere not very good. Mm. And, um, and he was trying to get away with things with both of them and everything. So we said, look, it's going to be an awful thing to do, but let's go down and confront him face to face and tell him exactly that we know exactly what's going on and, uh, and make him face up to things. We've never done this before, you know what I mean? We're not Jerry Springer or anything. <laughs> and um, we, um, So we went down, we didn't touch, it was at, it was at Linda's, and uh, we went down on, uh, I think it was a Sunday afternoon or something, and... Uh, uh, Linda, and we said, well, we come to see Paul. Linda had to wrench him out of bed. And he came down. And we sat him down in the back, in the back uh, uh, kitchen and just told him, you know, you know, we're we close mates. You know, you, you're going nowhere. You're not kidding anyone. You've got to do something. You know, why? why and just, just put it all out. And, um, and he was in tears. You know what I mean? It, it really, mm-hmm. you know, it hit him hard. And me and me and Andy, me and Andy were devastated afterwards. You know, what I mean, it was, a, um, and uh, you know, we went away, uh, not even convinced it would do any good, but at least we knew that we'd. But you needed to say that we did. That, that was the thing. That we, you, know, you we, needed to. We tried. Yeah, yeah. You said oh. if you don't tell Angela, I will. That's what. That's what I think yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah, so that, he that's... told me when we were in Dublin because he was frightened that you would tell me. Because we we just said you know. Um, uh, well, it's just it's so unfair, isn't it? You can't start a relationship with somebody and you need to know that they know. And I said, what do they want to talk to me about? And you said, they're going to tell you that I've started using again. Oh, my God. Did this really happen? Absolutely devastated. Because oh. I didn't see... Because I didn't know. I didn't yeah. know, the, so I know... I know... I kind of sensed that you were a bit different. Uh-huh. But I couldn't quite work out what was going on because, I, like now, I'd know a mile off. But yeah. I didn't really put two and two together. But you definitely changed. There was a change in you. Mm. 
Um, and it was in, when we were in Dublin, you confessed to me that that was going on and that that, that gave me, mm -hmm. as a codependent person, my mission to fix you. Oh. Uh, which lasted for about 17 years yeah. of my life, trying to... I couldn't have had a habit <laughs> if it was in Dublin because I wouldn't have known where to score. You, you didn't have a habit, but you were dabbling. Yeah. But that's enough, isn't it? You of know course, it's a slippery yeah. slope. And I knew it would end up um, the way it ended up. And the way it ended up was you going into the Priory. Yes, yes. Um... Was that after a stint in, um, what's the one in Lydham St Anne's? No, that was afterwards. That was the afterwards. The first one that I witnessed you going into was the Priory in Altrincham. Right. You did actually manage to get clean and you came out determined to do those summer festival shows clean and sober. Yes, yes. Um, so you came out of the Priory and you... The reason that I stayed with you was because you always expressed a desire to be clean and stay clean. You never mm. went, fuck it, I'm just going to use. No. So I always believed that you wanted to be clean. Yeah. And that's what kept me in it, mm. I think, because mm. I wanted to support that. Yeah. So a newly clean Paul then had a string of festival gigs that summer that former percussionist Lee Mullen remembers better than Paul, particularly a gig they did in Japan. I remember as soon as we got off the plane, there was loads and loads of schoolgirls looking, look like schoolgirls with really short skirts on and white socks. And I remember Rowetta kicking off saying, do not let any of them on our coach. I remember that. I remember going, do not let any of them on our coach. And she was quite right. But the whole thing, the, the Japanese thing, the, the culture thing is, is totally different to anywhere else. I've, I've been lucky enough to go back to Japan a couple of times with other artists and, uh, since then. And, um, and it freaks me out every time I go there, to be honest. I mean, we didn't really spend that much time there. I remember us, we flew in from somewhere. We stayed on the tour bus at the airport and then flew out to Japan the next day. So we flew in from, I think we might have flown in from doing Galway Festival or somewhere. We flew in from doing a festival and then we stayed at the airport pub, which was the airport pub in, in, on the tour bus in the car park and then flew out the day after to Japan, because it was a really early flight. It was crazy. I remember doing Slane Castle, and I realised then um, that how much of good friendship Robbie Williams had with Paul, when Robbie yeah. Williams was massive, and he was, yeah. he just brought out Let Me Entertain You and all those. And I think it just had the oh, angels and all those. And anyway, he was like, really, he was like, that was like 300,000 people, 250,000 people at Slane Castle. And Paul did really well. He managed to pull them all off, newly clean and sober, despite the tension between him and Sean escalating. One person who witnessed the tension up close was their tour manager's assistant and personal manager, Anthony Murray, also known as Muzza. I was really close to the pair of them because I was in the middle of them all the time. He was just killing his fuck parts. Never, never got annoyed. Might have been annoyed, but he never shown it. He never let it get, never let Sean know that, that it was ever affecting him. I, I just don't understand it. And I don't understand why. And Paul, Paul never did anything bad. Sean's not, he fights with his mouth and, and it's bullshit. 
Paul and Sean's mum, Linda, tells Gaz Whelan's mum, Sandra, that Sean had displayed a similar personality from the day he was born. From the minute Sean was born, we knew he was here. <laughs> we knew he was here. He never slept. He never stopped crying. And he never was never still. And when I come to... And he was being thoroughly ruined... They told me I shouldn't have any more children for at least four years. When Sean, um, now I know why, when Sean was born, I came out in this rash all over and they said it was shock. <laughs> shock. <laughs> Paul would always want his dad to be right up on a pedestal. Sean didn't. Right. Sean kept Derek always down. <laughs> Paul always pumped him up. Paul yeah. had a great relationship then. Whatever got on with Sean and, and his dad was uh, early doors, always fighting. But Paul never Paul, The only fights I've seen them two fight was over Derek. When Paul, Sean said something about Derek and Paul would have none of it. Never fucking throw his guitar bottle at him. That's the only time he'd get violent straight away. And Sean would do it on a regular basis. And they told me not to think of having any more children. Really? I was so traumatised <laughs> for at least... Four years. Derek was the main boy looking after them. He had their backs more than anything. And Sean knew that, but he didn't want to give him the glory of it. Was he a naughty baby? Or... No. No. I mean, I had feeding... Pro- he was £11, don't forget, £11.5. So none of his clothes fit him when he was born. We had to cut a brand-new baby in nighties with ragged sleeves where Derek could cut. Musser had been working with the band since the very early days and it took him a while to become a fan of the music after a friend suggested that they go and see them play. We went to watch them in Middleton and uh, the, at the trade centre and I walked in and it was the worst thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I was used to Pink Floyd and Doors and productions and I know nothing talking heads. And this is on stage. Bezzy's falling over. Sean's falling over. The fucking noise. I'm like, oh, my God, what the fuck is this? I've got rheumatic fever. So I had to go back to my mum's for three months. Ah, right. So he was being picked up, nursed all the yeah. time and played yeah. with and had all the attention. And I said to Derek, do you know what? This is getting ridiculous. The sooner we have another child, yeah. the better. But they were dead nice kids. When I met Sean, said we'll come down to the boardwalk. And that's when I met Paul, who was dead chilled out and dead laid back. I literally used to pray to God, please let this baby sleep. And I think God must have listened to my prayers too much. <laughs> because Paul was just the opposite. He, he always slept. Paul was the one that, that had something about him. As, and they, they did, so I'm not disrespecting them, but yeah. you know who was there when Paul said he was, this is me, Sean said this is my brother, Paul. I was thinking, well, two brothers in the band. And the band soon asked Mother to work for them. But in those early days, he didn't join them for the love of their music. I wasn't there for the band because it was completely shit to me. And uh, as I've got headphones on, listen, I've got talking heads and they think I'm dancing to them. But I'd have Tom Jones on and Glenn Campbell. I come from that type of thing with mum and dad, so I love that music. Those times he come with a, a walkman with fucking Glenn Campbell on, and I said, yeah, he go, what do you think? I go, oh, mint, the tune's great. And he goes, you fucking got Glenn Campbell, little green apples on. And Paul used to just laugh. After touring for 10 years, taking loads of pills, I loved him in the end. Pissed and having loads of ease, yeah, yeah anyone would. I, I mean, did like him. Just for the, for the benefit of the tape, I did like him. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. 
So I was pregnant with Sonny by mm. this point, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was definitely in it. And I remember you saying to me, when I was pregnant, you said to me, I've got you now. Oh, dear. I've got you now. That's sick. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> it was really sick. You said, yeah. I've got you now. Oh, wow. Because you did. Like, 18 years, we're going to have a connection through a child, whether we're together or not. You got mm-hmm. me, you got that. You got a connection. Yeah. Wow. It was during that time that he met Jason Godwin at a self-help meeting and Jason would go on to become one of Paul's closest friends. He come to a meeting in Hartford where I, I used to go as well. And I always remember it because Tom and Paul were sitting on the other side of the room. For the whole of this meeting, uh, Paul was staring at me and I was thinking, what's, like, what's wrong with me? What, what is it? And after the meeting, you know, we went and had a coffee, me, Tom and Paul, and he, he said to me, he said, oh, I like your trainers. He goes, I was clocking them in the meeting, your trainers. <laughs> I was like, it's a funny thing, I was like into your trainers as well. And he took my number. And like, at the time, you know, I wasn't probably like most people in those meetings, you know, Paul as well, you know, I was really, really struggling in my life. And he called me the next day. And I was like, no way, he's calling me. What does he want? And I answered. And we're chatting away and he's like, oh, it was good to see you last night and that. And he said, uh, do you want to swap them trainers you got on for my trainers? Really? I didn't know. And that's how it started. And we went on for years after that just swapping clothes because we were around about the same sort of height and size and same foot size as well so yeah we that that that's kind of the first memories i have of meeting paul the next thing i kind of remember is coming down to st paul's road in islington where i remember knocking on the door tom knocking on the door because we was going to go out with paul for a, to a meeting yeah and paul opened the door and you just walked out of the toilet i'd never met you before and you had a, you just literally found out that you was pregnant with Sonny. Yeah. So we turned up at the most inappropriate of moments because <laughs> it was clearly you know, a special moment for you two. And we ended up going to a meeting and stuff, but that that's the first time I remember meeting you both. We were supposed to go to a meeting and he said, oh, I'm going to call round and see my mate, see Rob. Yeah. And I just thought it was his mate, Rob. So we went up to Notting Hill, me and Tom and, Paul and he knocks on the door and it was Robbie Williams he was going to see right and I found myself in Robbie Williams his house with Paul and Tom and before I knew it he was inviting us to Wembley to see him play at Wembley with Paul I think it was what I identified in Paul was that that kind of social awkwardness that that kind of vulnerability, just feeling very fragile and very delicate, and um, an imposter syndrome almost, you know, the, you know, um, low self esteem, all that kind of stuff. We shared it, you know, and um, as I got to know him and that, I realised he was just as fragile as I was, and I think that's what drew us together. You know, we uh-huh. we, we were delicate souls. So. Um... The year 
the millennium, the millennium mm-hmm. New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety nine. You were clean at that point. Oh, right. You'd you'd started going back to meetings. I think you'd done a second stint in the Priory. Yeah, I think. And I, I remember we celebrated the millennium in Manchester at an NA party. Oh, we did. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. With Rob, with Rob F, who yeah. went out of his way, another one who went out of his way to try and help me, took you to meetings yeah. galore. Love Rob F. Big shout out to Rob F. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> yeah, my mm-hmm. goodness, he did. He went out of his way. He was doing up our house because mm-hmm. I got pregnant with Sonny, bought a house in Manchester, sold my house in London, mm-hmm. um, and we rented a flat in the city centre That's while right, the house yeah. was being done up. And I remember one day you were clean, one day you went to buy a jukebox. Yeah, I remember that. Came back. And you'd used again. Oh, you spotted straight away, didn't yeah. you, by them days? Yeah, it was bad. There was no getting away with it. No, no. No, but then again, it shows how strong the, the addiction is. Because I, I knew that you would know straight away. But it didn't matter. It just didn't matter. So you must have been really scared to come home because you'd know that there would be a fight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what did that feel like? Awful. Still feels awful right now. <laughs> it's painful. Yeah, it's important to own it, though, isn't it? Yeah, you got to own it. you got to own it. And I often wonder what might... Because a lot of people said to me that you would never stop using while you were still with me because I was enabling you just mm. by providing you with a home and with... <laughs> with comfort, with home comfort and somewhere to be. Well, we proved that wrong because we had eight years of not using before we split up. Yeah, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk about that later because okay. I've got opinions about that too. OK. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to the music. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So then we had Sonny mm. and you made a very big decision just after we'd had Sonny mm-hmm. because you'd again managed to get clean mm-hmm. and you said that if you carried on being in the band with Sean, who because relations between the two of you were fractious. Oh, very, I remember, at that time, very, very I remember the, the then manager, Neil Mather, mm-hmm. Was responsible for taking for getting Sean off for being with Sean as he came off stage, and I was responsible for being with you when you got off stage. So you didn't fight. Yeah, yeah. 
And the only reason we were going to fight is because he was goading me on stage. Monday singer Oetta has unpleasant memories of that time too. There were always arguments back at that point. In 99, there were just always horrible, horrible arguments, horrible things being said while we were on stage. Um, it wasn't a nice place to be in our band, I didn't think, 99 really. I mean, I left in 2000. We all left because of arguments with Sean. I think even Bez left eventually for a while. But um, yeah, it was just, I just remember it not being a nice place. What was he doing? What was he saying? Oh, our kids up wanker, fucking shit like that. Yeah. You know, just bad mouthing me all the way through concerts. Yeah. That was one of the reasons I left the band. Yeah. It was like, if I carry on, I'm going to kill him or I'm going to go back on heroin. And, and that's why I left. The band's tour assistant, Anthony Murray, witnessed the trouble between the brothers firsthand. I shared a room with Sean all the way through all the tours. I've got a great memories. I've got a photographic memory, and you know, I can remember things word for word. And there's some some heavy shit went on down. Probably pop star bullshit. Yeah. Paul didn't have pop star bullshit. He was a pop star better than anyone, but he didn't have the bullshit with it. It didn't help that the band would usually fly economy to the shows, but Sean would travel first class and insist that Muzzer travel first class with him, which made Muzzer feel really bad for the rest of the band. Sean's always insisted I went first class. They'd be in economy, but he'd go, ah, fuck the band, fuck them. Paul would say, I'm not worry about it, it's not you. But Paul was always reassuring you, saying, don't worry about it, we know it ain't you. I'm like, ah, fuck it, what do I do? He's going, it's him. Him, he's insisting that he loved that shit. Then you've got the, the brother shit, so he's going to go down. One's really cool. And you know, and when you're arguing someone, they don't argue back, it does your fucking head in. You want to, you're, if you've got a better hanging you know, and, and they're cool, you can't beat them with your tongue because they're that cool. That's so, uh, it's so upsetting, so annoying. So I don't know how to explain it. The tension between the brothers had been brewing for years as Paul and Sean's mum Linda and Gaz Whelan's mum Sandra explain. They were in love with one and then mm-hmm. all hell broke out, didn't it, when they were older? It was after the band started, really. Were they all right at school, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, they went out together when they left right. school. They were ah, always together. Right, yeah. they were all, I always said it was when girls got involved. Well, could be, yeah. Mm. You know, they always criticised each other's um, Mm. girlfriend. Monday's guitarist Mark Day found himself in the middle of fights sometimes. Well, they're just brothers, weren't they? They were just, you know, they would argue and bicker over minor things. I mean, I had to referee quite a few times. It was quite funny one time when... um, there was some argument, I don't know what it was about, but it ended up in the, the ginnel at the back there. They both took the tops off, fisticuffs, I was refing, and then um, then they put them back on, went back to rehearse again. He didn't know what he was going to get, what day, if they was talking or if there was some something going on. It just got worse. I think it was either petty over money or something or other. You talk about the Gallagher brothers, nothing on Sean and Paul. I'd, I'd just become immune to it. They were such good close pals for one another. Oh, there you go. Somebody's throwing a tambourine at somebody. Mm-hmm. It's a shame, that really. Yeah. Oh, there you go. They're fighting on stage again. But then my mother used to say, right, I'm not having them both together again. Oh, there you go. The CS gas has gone off. He wants what he's got and he mm. wants what he's got. If we get kicked out of the hotel, he just, he just got used to it. And then the arguing starts. Just brothers, in it. <laughs> Monday singer Oetta remembers one particular fight very vividly. 
the argument's got worse later on, especially between the brothers. I remember a fight in Nathan's office with um, Sean and Paul. I think they'd gone outside, saying outside. And I remember um, Sean had said, you've got blood on my shirt. When they came back in, there was blood all over Sean's shirt. And instead of saying, you beat me up or you, you punched me, you've got blood all over my shirt. I do remember that. Um, but yeah, they'd, they'd gone outside to have a proper fist fight, but I didn't obviously see it. I just remember Sean saying about the blood. And Monday's Vibes Meister, Bez, lived to regret getting between them one day when fisticuffs were occurring. It wasn't so bad at first, but there was always a little power battle going on between them, which was like, you know what I mean? And the biggest mistake I ever made was when I've tried breaking up the fighting one day, full on fight, I thought, fucking hell, I'm going to have to break him up. And I went in and uh, Paul bit me thumb that hard, he nearly bit it off. And I thought, ah, I said, oh, she fucking bite me fucking thumb, you know what I mean? But yeah, they used to have fights all the time. And it was because they were both so competitive with each other, you know what I mean? And, uh, and you know, there's that always chance to outkill each other. <laughs> it was the coolest. Former Monday's keyboardist Paul Davis has his own take on the situation. There are two separate lads, two brothers, two different people. And Paul was always in charge, you know, Paul would make the decision. And Sean thinks he's made the decision. It was just like a power, you know, you would stick with the band, the band, the bass player, the guitarist, the keyboard player, the drummer would do the music. And Sean would do his side. It was just like, that's how it went. And I asked one of Paul's best friends, Gaz Whelan, the Monday's drummer, for his take. Talk to me about the rivalry between the brothers. They kind of both would never admit they was one. I didn't really see any competition until they were much older. I didn't notice it until much older. I just thought, brothers! You know, I, didn't, I had a younger brother, I didn't talk to him, you know, so... And I was younger, so they all kind of looked at me as just a little bit of a kid, maybe. So, so they would get into arguments and like literally fist fights. And Mark, because he's big, would jump in the middle of them. And I had two fights with Sean. Never had any fights with Paul. But they had a kind of. It would, I don't feel early on they didn't seem to be a rivalry. Paul was Paul was in charge of the band early on. And that, and I think Sean was quite happy with that. You know, Paul was one that was really serious about it all. I think Sean. I would say it wasn't serious, but it wasn't as, it was a bit more carefree about it. The relationship between us all deteriorated. And I think early on, Mark always kept himself on the outside away from it all, wisely. But me, PD, Paul and Sean were very close. And then Bez when he came in. Bez was always a free bird doing his own thing. I had to have an older brother, I had an older sister, so Paul was like an older brother to me. And I know that's a real cliche, but he really was, he really was. You know, we, like I said, we were very close and got on and then we, you know, we fell out over silly things, but he was like a little brother to me, so it was a, it was a band thing that I didn't, I didn't really... Honestly, I didn't, I didn't see it as them two were... In fact, I didn't see them as brothers in the band. They, were, they was always uh, turning out and do each other. Right. They always turned out and dress each other and out aftershave each other early on, I remember that. You could go in an hotel and you could you know which, which hotel room each of them was in. Because you could you could smell it down the lobby. I remember getting in a in a in a lift once in in New York and I could smell the aftershave. I got in the one lift going up and it was Lagerfeld, so that, that was Sean's. And then coming down it was Hugo Boss and it was Paul's. 
No, it might not have been Hugo Boss. I thought that when I said it, it was probably something more expensive. But I've just bought a uh, Poister's Way Lagerfeld. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was the one Poister's Way. He wore Aqua de Palma. That was one of his. That's the one, the, the Mediterranean Man one, yeah. That's the one, yeah. Geo Trumper that you have to go to Bond Street for. He used to like that one as well. Their former manager, Phil Sachs, has his own observations. I think a little bit like the uh, the Brian, jo Brian Jones and Mick Jagger type situation with the Stones. You know, Brian yeah. Jones's band ends up being Mick Jagger's band. And I think to some degree that's true. You know, Paul's band ends up being Sean's band. And he's got Bev as well. So the focus was very much on, on Sean and Bev. And of course, I think there was always an undercurrent with Paul that he wanted some recognition for himself. I reminded Gaz Whelan, the Monday's drummer, about the time just before Paul left in 1999 when I had a job to do at those live shows. I remember at the gigs, I'd have to get Paul and Neil Mather would have to get Sean and take them off into different places so that they didn't kick off after the shows. Then just after I had Sonny, he decided he would leave the band because he was worried about getting back he said if I stay in the band I'll go get I'll go back to heroin because Sean is winding me up too much. I remember that and I remember it was just before the Australia tour going to Australia. I remember that yeah. So he pulled out and Sean was fuming. But you were very understanding about why he pulled out. Rowetta too understood and supported Paul's decision to leave. I just remember it not being a nice place. So it probably during rehearsals it was really it was it was just bad. It was um yeah, it's the comments, as I say, you don't hear them. I've heard him since on videos where he says things under his breath and you don't realise until it's about you. And then when he started saying things to me, I realised what he does. And he says the same thing every night at the same time. And it gets to you. And that's what he was doing with Horse. Because Horse hasn't got a microphone. You didn't like it because I left. So you'd, you'd been offered um, a, a tour supporting Oasis. Yeah. And it was a big deal, that tour, because it was big venues. I think yeah. it involved going to Australia as well. Australia I missed out on, and the Oasis gigs I missed out on. But I would have killed him because of the way he was treating me, especially on stage, down the microphone. But I wanted to kill him because of the shit he was saying. Yeah. You know? And when I, I you know, finally found the strength to walk away. How did it feel walking away? Awful, it was like a death. Yeah. Like a death, it's like, from when we first split up, it was like a death. Yeah. Like a death in a family. You know, that's all I'd known for many years. And I'd worked hard to get the band where it was. Mm. We'd all worked hard. Do you remember who you told first? It would have been Gaz. And what did Gaz say? It's probably a good idea. Yeah. Mm, Gary really cared about his sobriety, yeah. didn't he? Mm. The percussionist from that time, Lee Mullen, was really upset to learn that Paul had been pushed so far that he didn't feel he could continue in the band. That was the first thing. I looked over and it wasn't it wasn't his rig there and and then I realised that he wasn't doing the, the, the band. And all I heard that him and Sean had had a fallout. That's all I knew. And what did Sean say? Nothing to me personally. We didn't speak for years after that. Um, but via other people, I heard he was calling me an asshole and a wanker for leaving. I remember, he's, I remember him saying, why doesn't he just take a bit of heroin if that's how bad he feels? Yeah. Obviously doesn't know anything about addiction. 
mm. being a using addict, you never really give it chance. Mm. So Paul missed out on some really great shows supporting Oasis, who Paul had become pretty friendly with over the years. When we did the tour with 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 Oasis, uh, basically all Liam, because we I've known Liam and Noel since I was fourteen anyway, but they'd all come into the Happy Mondays dressing room. They'd come in. Well, Noel wouldn't, but Liam would and stuff. And all of a sudden, they would accuse him of getting drunk with us before they went on stage. So when we did the, the later gigs, like at Murrayfield and a few of the other gigs, they would they would they would ban the the production would ban any of of of, of Liam coming anywhere near our dressing room. Paul and Liam were pretty, were, and Paul and Noel actually were pretty good friends. Yeah. Um, yeah. They obviously had a, a history together, and I think yeah. they. I remember a, a wedding once. Paul talking to Liam uh, yeah. about fighting with the, with brothers and, and they were comparing notes about their brotherly feud. To, to be really honest with you, I could see how they would get on because I've known I've known Liam for a long time and obviously I knew Paul very well, so I could see why they would get on. So then you were you didn't have a job. No. You left your band, you got a, a new young baby and two other children who were like Nine and twelve, or ten and thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Um, you lived in a beautiful house in a beautiful part of Manchester, mm-hmm. backing onto a canal. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't enough. Was Still it? wasn't enough. Still wasn't enough. No, and leaving the band didn't stop you from relapsing either, did it? No, it stopped me from killing him, but not re- not from relapsing. Right, and that the next nine years. Mm-hmm. On and off, on and off. It was just one rehab after another, Mm -hmm. after another, after another. Yeah. In and out of recovery, Mm -hmm. going to meetings, professing wanting to stay clean. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to be clean, but I just couldn't, I didn't know how to do it. What was it like going to meetings in Manchester for you? Um, Probably a bit difficult because people knew who I was mm. and where you know, where I'd come from. And I remember going to an, uh, an NA convention in Glasgow and walking out of a room and this kid was walking towards me and went, oh, you're the reason I've got a heroin habit. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And really? it was like, oh, really? Fucking hell, put in your step one, dude. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, so that wasn't nice. No. No. So one of the rehabs you went to was a place called Pierpoint in St Anne's. Oh, my Tell God. Tell me about that. I know, I've known, I know a lot of people that went through that place and they're still in recovery like 30 years later. You know, a lot of yeah. good people. Um, but for me, it was, pretty, it was a bad experience. It was like two o'clock in the morning and I'm rattling my tits off on this really bad detox. And there was a white South African nurse that came up close to me and said, you're in the music business, aren't you? That's my white South African accent. And so I said, yeah. And he went, all music is the devil's music. (laughs) Oh, for fuck's sake, here we go. So I said, what about Cliff Richard? And he turned around and said, he is the devil. (laughs) 
So I waited till eight o'clock in the morning when I knew you'd be awake and said, get me out of this place. This was the nurse that was saying this to me. Yeah. Get me out of here. So it was out of that one and into another one the same okay. day. You went into the Priory? Priory again. That day. Yeah. Um, which was a bit of a joke, really. I remember going in to visit you and you'd obviously used mm -hmm. and the it. nurses how could the pot nurses not spot that like I walked in I was like you've used what's happened who's given it to you like, no I haven't no I haven't uh -huh. I was like yes you have I got it delivered yeah incredible unbelievable yeah so you're in rehab to detox from, from heroin. heroin and I got it delivered and you got it delivered to yourself there yeah kind yeah. of sick really yeah that's how sh that shows how strong addiction is. Yeah. So you're paying thousands of pounds to be in a place. Yeah. But yet you it's sorted out your little supply. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And then after that, you came back and relapsed again. Oh my God. And you ended up going to a place in Bristol. In Bristol, yeah. No, no, it wasn't Bristol. It, it was set, it was south of Bristol. Can't remember the name of it now. Uh, it was, uh, it'll come to me. Yeah, but I, I only lasted a few days in there. I think I got a taxi to Bristol. No, well, th this was when you'd, through the recovery circles, you'd become friends with Robbie Williams. Mm -hmm. And you went into a rehab somewhere in the southwest. That's right, yeah, yeah. And... You decided that you weren't staying anymore. You, no. After paying thousands of pounds again, again, I got a phone call from them saying, "Oh, he's left," mm -hmm. and I didn't hear from you for like three days. I had no idea where you were. So, what? Tell me where you'd gone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I got a taxi and I went to, um, what's, what's the homeless place called? Um... You went to Bristol. Just a, not Samaritans. Salvation Army. Yeah. I got a taxi to the Salvation Army because I knew I'd be able to get drugs there. And I met this kid from Leeds who, who, got, who scored for me and I went back to his house and spent three or four days there using. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, I'd phoned my friend Robbie who jumped in a car with his driver and my mate Gary to come and rescue me from Bristol yeah. and I said to this lad don't be surprised when you open the door and it was <laughs> Robbie was at the front door saying where's Paul <laughs> <laughs> I've come to give him a ride back to, Man uh, to London so Robbie Williams came with his driver and picked you up he, out of yeah. his drug house yeah he rescued me thanks so Robbie <laughs> I never did say thank you for that but thank you yeah, and he took you back to London and then put mm. you on a train mm -hmm. and called me and said, right, he's on a train mm -hmm. on his way to Blackpool. Oh, actually, from there you went into Pierpoint. That's when I went into Pierpoint. Yeah, and then from Pierpoint you then went into the into the Priory. Mm -hmm. And then you came out of the Priory and then 
the next eight years was just you at home, depressed, really depressed, yeah. smoking cigarettes mm-hmm. in your bedroom, mm-hmm. um, not really being able to look after your kids. No, terrible state. Um, so one of the things, mm-hmm. one of the things that I did was um, we had a friend who had a house in France. Mm-hmm. And I thought it'd be a really good idea if we bought a house in France because it'd give you a project and that might help mm. st- you stay clean. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to France. And again, you're sort of in and out of using at this point. You had mm. some good periods and then you had some bad periods. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we went to France. Well, that, you, you was right. It was a great project. I think we looked at... 30 or 45, 45 properties. Houses and we bought the most expensive one. Yeah, like you do. The idea was to <laughs> sell the big house and buy a cheaper one in Manchester and with the difference buy a small house in France. Yeah. But we ended up buying a really big house in France. So it was absolutely stunning. Yeah. Still eight, is. Eight bedrooms, eight bathrooms, little cottage in the ground. Mm, if anyone wants to rent it out for the summer, <laughs> get in touch. We do rentals. <laughs> We actually do still do rentals of the property, so check out the website and send us an email if you're interested in renting it. What's more, if you become a patron of the show by going to our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash the Paul Ryder tapes, you can get a full 20% discount on any quoted Airbnb price for any available dates there in the next 12 months. So shopping for a house in France was kind of fun, wasn't it? That was great, yeah. Do you remember all the houses we looked at? Oh. One um, with all the dead flies in. Fly house. <laughs> Never seen so many dead flies. <laughs> it was incredible. It was like someone had died in there, wasn't it? Yeah. We didn't buy that one, though, did we? We didn't buy fly house. No. Instead, tell, talk about the house we ended up buying. Well, there's this English guy showing us around. Um, and he said... We told him we wanted to see this particular house, and he yeah. said, don't buy that, you'll hate it. It's a terrible house. It's a terrible <laughs> house. So um, we went to look at it, and we went in this one bedroom that was in the attic, and there was a great big gold, gold-coloured gold fibreglass bath there that fit about four people in it, yeah. and the taps was figurines, and the water came out of a dragon's mouth. <laughs> And then we just said, we've got to have this one. Yeah, and floor-to-ceiling mirror. Floor-to-ceiling mirror and angled mirrors on the balcony so you could see what was going on on the balcony. And we found out the guy that owned it used to have sex parties there. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, we've definitely got to have this house. And it had floor-to-ceiling mirrors in that bedroom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the bed was like a Chinese bed that was bolted to the floor. Yeah, yeah. Full poster thing. We did a lot of filming there at the time and I found a clip of us being interviewed in 2004 about buying it. So this is like 18 years ago. After shopping for a little tiny house with no work needing doing, we've come back with a gigantic pile that has got five acres of land and about eight bedrooms and needs loads of work doing to it. <laughs> I haven't got a clue about DIY. What's DIY? <laughs> yeah. 
somebody in the 70s presumably made it really modern but that was modern for the 70s so it's great on the outside but it's pretty bad on the inside but almost so bad that it's good so what we want to do is hang on to the best bits of the, of the 70s stuff but I don't know, then, we're a bit then confused. Then put some original we? stuff back in, but yeah. also have some some stuff from the new millennium in there, like a glass staircase. Oh no, I don't want a glass staircase. No, no. Oh no, what a glass staircase. Oh. I'm excited. Because um, I've just been sitting on my ass for the past two or three years. So. You don't sound very excited. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> There was a great uh, in in the in the far room, fat one of the living rooms. We ripped it out, but it was a great cupboard that folded out with a mirror on there, and it was perfect for doing cocaine on. Oh, I didn't the know that. The cocaine mirror, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what it was there oh. for. <laughs> and one another reason we bought that strange house. Yeah. It was incredible. It was proper 1970s uh, yeah. decor. Yeah, there's a Jason King suite, we called it. Remember Jason that? King, yeah, from Department, <laughs> Department <laughs> S. S. <laughs> yeah, Jason King would have lived in that room. Yeah. Mega house. So we asked our friend Jason, who just happened to be a builder, and you might recognise him from ITV's 60-minute makeover, to come over with us and help us evaluate the house. We thought we'd do it up and rent it out to holidaymakers to help cover the running costs. When we went inside, it didn't look like it had any work done to it since about 1982, when the previous oh, owner... Or the 70s. <laughs> or the 70s, yeah. So, so it was... And I, I saw that it was total rewiring, replumbing, and I was thinking, I cannot let them buy this place, yeah. And I was doing everything in my power to put you off of it. The wiring hadn't been touched since the 70s. The plumbing hadn't been touched since the 70s. The decor hadn't been touched since probably the 60s. <laughs> and and it was a huge sprawling pad, wasn't it? You know, and, and I just thought you you was taking on way, way more. And you was expecting me to kind of help you renovate this place. And I was thinking, I don't speak French. If I come over, how are we going to do all this? And, yeah, it just seemed like way too much. Yeah. So we bought that one, the one he said, you don't go to that one, you won't like it, we liked it. Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was massive, it like was it was huge. enormous. We had no idea what we were taking on, we were so naive. No idea, no, and five acres of land. Yeah, with a river running through. It was incredible. So we had to put a swimming pool in, didn't we? Yeah, if we was going to rent it out, the shenanigans of the swimming pool, two hours before the first <laughs> guest was to arrive, <laughs> We were still shoveling soil <laughs> around uh, around the edge of the pool. Ben Leach fitted. was helping us. You remember, hit the keyboard player from the Mondays, lived up the road. Yes, yes, Ben was helping us out a lot. Man. Yeah. He was great. He was an electrician. He was a builder. He, yeah. he could do anything, Ben. Yeah. And then um, then it burnt down. Yeah, we'll come All to that later. All half of it burnt down. <laughs> we'll come to that later. That's okay. a few years later. So we bought this house and, and I was thinking, this will help Paul stay clean. It'll be a project for him. Mm-hmm. And it was a project. Yeah. But it didn't help. It didn't really make you Once stay again, clean, again, another Another example of how strong addiction is. The last time that I saw Paul, um, 
what was beautiful about that is that he he remembered that it was Emily's birthday, my daughter's birthday, and he got her a card and he put 50 quid in there. And when we met up with him, he gave her the card. I didn't know that was the last time I was going to see him because we'd actually got we was planning to meet him the weekend before he passed away at Alexandra Palace. We was going down to see him there. And that's when I was texting him because it all came through via social media that, you know, Paul had died. That's the way I found out. Tom sent me a message saying, have you heard about Paul? And I knew when he'd sent me the message that something that Paul had died, strangely enough. Mm. And so I think I went on and had a look and, it was saying that Paul had passed away. He'd been texting like two or three days before that, you know, about meeting up and doing everything. So I'd started texting him saying, Paul, you know, because I just didn't want to believe that at all. Yeah. And I had COVID at the time and we was in the middle of a heat wave. So I was like, I was really ill. And it it was just the most surreal. It was the most heartbreaking it was awful. And then I think we spoke, me and you spoke that evening. And when I finally spoke to you, that's when I kind of accepted that, you know, he'd passed away. And um, even now, you know, I am, um, there's a part of me that thinks that, you know, he's still, he's still around, you know. The impact he had on my life along with yourself, Ange, is something that has, you know, it changed everything. It was a game changer. Just, you know, just you two were so down to earth and so not rock and roll and so not kind of showbiz, but just decent, honest, you know, just lovely, lovely people to spend time with. I've only, I look back now and I know there was lots of um, heartache and kind of stress and trauma, but I can look back and honestly say that, you know, it was a fantastic time in my life and, you know, I miss him dearly every day. It's not a day goes by. I don't think about him. I still can't listen to their music. I don't think I'd ever go to a Monday's gig again. Coming up on the next episode. I enjoyed it. I just thought it was crap. The music part in it I like, but the rest I thought, hmm, it's a load of nonsense. Your dad, who was the tour manager, oh, yeah, had yeah. to stand in for Pete. <laughs> Pressing buttons and pretending to play the keyboards. Yeah. And, and then Pete, Pete walked on like halfway through the show. <laughs> Happy Mondays, I recognise that it was probably the first band since The Stranglers. To me, where the bass was monumental. You know what I mean? It's like you could tell this kid on bass knew how to write a good bass line and how to play it. I looked up and saw like the roof was on fire the ceiling that's when I called you saying it's on fire what do I do you'd left the two boys in the house that was burning yes he storms out through this door shuts the door behind him and then like about 10 seconds later he comes out and says it's a cupboard (laughs) (laughs) we're playing out with the acoustic version of the big arm track sun rays watch out for the album dropping any day now Thank you to our new patrons of the show. That's Nick G and his son Manny, as well as Stephen Merriman, who joins us from Spain. 
There are only a limited number of founding member places left, so if you would like to join our club, get yourself signed up by going to patreon.com forward slash the Paul Ryder tapes. Visit the website at paulrider.tv for links to our socials and our shop where you can bag some fab merch. Thank you to the guests and thank you to you. That's you, yes, for being with us. We really appreciate all of the lovely messages that you keep sending and we love it that we've created a really nice community amongst ourselves. The podcast will be back again next Sunday, same time, same place. And if you'd like to watch this podcast on video, it's available in a week's time. They release every Sunday at 8pm UK time. And me and Paul's youngest son, Chico, are always in the chat live answering any questions you may have. So do join us. The only thing left to say is, as usual, big thanks to the man himself who opened his heart and soul for this series, the one and only Paul Anthony Ryder. I love the sun, a sunny day, sunrise, sunrise. I love the sun, a sunny day, sunrise. A sunny day, sunrise, sunrise. Glistening Productions. <laughs> I forgot what I was telling you now.